So this is God's word to you today. This is Esther 2, verses 1 through 18. It says, After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended them said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel who was uh, named Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away uh, with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. And he was bringing up Hadessa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a very beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and the edict proclaimed, and when many of the young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food, And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for her young women to go into King Xerxes after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king on, in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in. And in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her, and when Esther was taken to King Xerxes into his royal palace in the tenth month, which was the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a feast for all the officials and servants, and it was Esther's feast, And he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. All right. That's God's word to you this morning. Um, Let's 
uh, spend some moments in silence and pray and ask that God would reveal himself to us uh, in that moment of silence. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have brought us here to this place in this moment, and your desire is to set your affection on us, to beautify us by your very gaze, to let us know how to operate in the midst of a world that is broken, and to face it, to face what's before us, and to know that you are faithfully present in the midst of all things whether that's our own broken stories, our own broken bodies, our own broken relationships, Lord, you're there. And you desire for us to be captured by the gospel in whatever situation we find ourselves in right now. And so, as we look at this story, would, would you teach us about Jesus through it? Would you teach us that you have been at work um, from the beginning of time? And you have been at work from the beginning of each of our stories in this room. And so, Lord, uh, cut us to the heart and, and expose us. Expose us and fulfill us by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have grown to uh, love the book of Esther because it helps us ask questions like, How do we live as believers when God seems absent? How do we function in the world, at least somewhat faithfully, when it doesn't seem like the gospel's at work at all? Um, Part of what this passage is, is addressing is how do we think about our physical appearance? How do we think about our standards for beauty within God's plan? How do we navigate the loneliness that we feel in the midst of our own communities? Uh, And what we're going to see here is we're going to see how this text helps us understand beauty and exile in the midst of God's plan. Okay? So point, point one, how do we understand beauty within God's plan? One of the things we learned last week is this teaching on Providence. Providence is both a comforting and challenging doctrine in the Bible because it simply means that God governs all that comes to pass. Now, that's hard when we think about suffering. Um, It's also comforting when we feel lost in the world. But he does his governing in and through the decisions and actions of human beings. And so verse 17 is important of our passage because it shows the purpose behind why Vashti was removed from her post as queen. She was removed so that Esther could get into her place as the queen of the most powerful empire of the time, which is Persia. But here's the difficult part about God's providence and his governing of all that comes to pass. God's plan was accomplished in this way through a beauty contest. Okay? Where, and I want, I want us to really pay attention to the text here this morning, where women prepared themselves 
for an entire year to have one night with the king, and their goal was to physically please the king. This is in the Bible, y'all. This is not like Game of Thrones. This is like straight up Bible, okay? The more I studied the details of this text and read commentaries and, and listened to sermons, the more backwards it seemed and unethical. Uh, these women were chosen based solely on outward beauty and sex appeal, and they didn't have a say in the matter. And I was like, this is so very wrong. Why would a culture do this? And then I thought about our own culture, and I thought about things like Tinder, and that we do similar things in our own culture. And I realized that the author of Esther is not condoning what's happening. This is the beautiful thing about the Bible. It's not, if you pay attention to it, it's not condoning what's happening. It's simply stating the reality of a broken world and showing that God works in the midst of it. It's stating the reality of our own broken lives and saying God is there. I'm not saying what people are doing is right, but I'm saying that the gospel is at work. And Karen Jobs, one of the commentators, says it was very common for a king to have around 500 eunuchs during this time. As a way of saying, no one in this environment was safe. Uh, everyone's sexuality could be altered at the king's disposal. And though we may not have power in this room to be as shrewd as King Xerxes, you know, if you're single in here and you're thinking about marriage, we often do this prior to marriage. Uh, we, walk, we walk into a room and we dismiss almost everybody based upon what our eyes see who could be a perfectly suited marital partner. Because we don't look at the heart, we look at the outward appearance. And we definitely do this online all the time, depending on which way we swipe. And the king... That's what the king's doing. He's discarding all these other women who didn't meet his physical standards. But the point of this chapter is that Esther won his favor. Alistair Begg said this uh, in his sermon. He said, God works through human decisions even when those decisions are bad ones. Um, in Psalm 92, 6-8, I want you to pay attention to this verse. It says, the fool can't understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass in the world, they are doomed, but you, O Lord, are on high forever. Meaning, God works in and through human decisions even when they are bad decisions. A biblical example of this, you remember the patriarch Abraham. Abraham's wife was very beautiful. Her name was Sarah. And anytime he went into a dominant culture like Egypt, he had this elaborate plan in his mind where he said, I'm going to just say that she's my sister because if I tell people that she's my wife, she's so beautiful, they're going to kill me and, and take, take her for themselves. And he went up into this country where this guy named Abimelech was king. And she's like, yeah, she, she's my sister. And so Abimelech takes her. And then, and then God comes to Abimelech and says, hey, that's another man's wife. And Abimelech says, I, I didn't touch her in the integrity of my heart. I didn't even touch her. And also, she's, she's the sister of Abraham. And this is what God says to Abimelech in a dream in Genesis 20, verse 6. This is how God's providence and human decisions work together. 
God says to Abimelech, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Please listen. But it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her. Now, this is part of the heart, this is part of the heart of the gospel, and this is the mystery of God's providence and, and human will, because it means that the good that we think we do, the ways in which we act with equity, were actually done because of the grace of God. That that's a gift given to us because God's constraining grace in our lives. Now, you may be like, what does this have to do with Esther and my life? Uh, Everything. When someone understands the gospel, they see that whatever good they do is from God. And most of us, I've been at enough funerals to know that when we talk about another person, we usually talk about all the good stuff that they have done. And that's okay to, to a certain extent, but the purpose of that, according to Scripture, is that the good that we have done is supposed to point us to God's grace, to, his, to Him, because we are His image. And it's okay to honor people if it points us to God's gracious governing of our lives in every detail. Now, this is very important in how we relate to one another, and how we appear before one another, and how we address one another in this world, because we'd like to think that we aren't as obsessed with how we appear as this culture in Persia, that we aren't as uh, driven by outward things that we present to the world. But guys, just take, just take an inventory of your life. Like, do you spend more time on your inner life or your outer life? Like, just metrically, do you spend more time in the mirror or before the Lord? Do you spend more time on, on your resume or thinking about the things that are going to happen in, in eternity? And so, the reason why I say this is not, not to make you feel horribly guilty. What I'm saying is that when I read this passage, I was like, this is whack. Like, that's messed up. What they're doing is messed up. And I think I immediately condemn myself. Because I look at Xerxes and Mordecai and Esther, and I judge them. And I ought not to. It's very, it's very easy for us to judge one another, isn't it? Thinking even in this own room. I want you to think about the last three years. As a pastor, I also want you to think about the coming year where there's like a thing called an election. Um, And it's very easy for us to pit one another against each other. And what, what the scriptures constrain us to do is to say, don't judge based upon what your eyes see. We can learn a lot from the text of Scripture by looking at what it doesn't say. You know what the author doesn't include in this story? It doesn't include any of the motivations behind why people do what they do. It's simply telling the story. Look, I I want us to focus in on this. Do you know how honoring it is? to another person by by simply observing what they do and as best as you can, as accurately as you can, 
just recounting what is said and done without making judgments on their motivations? The reason why that's important, you guys, is because only God knows the motives behind why we do things. It's also very important when you think about how you view God. Like something bad happens in your life and you immediately conclude, oh, God must be mad at me. No, that's not who God is. Many have walked away from uh, books like Esther and, and they'll say, you see, God, God's a patriarchal misogynist. If he wasn't, why would he let some innocent orphan girl be placed in such a terrible situation where she had no choice? But the text never says that God approves of what anybody is doing. It just simply is stating the story accurately. The reason why that's important, you guys, is for two reasons. It challenges us to accept the reality, the exact reality in which we find ourselves and to face it and to simultaneously believe that God is at work in the midst of it. God did not approve of people killing his one and only son. But he did allow it. And through that mysterious providence, you know what happened? The gospel. God doesn't approve of the beauty standards of Persia or our own modern culture, but he's at work in both. It would be wise for us not to assume the motives of other people or dismiss them because they appear a certain way. You know, Dolly Parton was interviewed by uh, Barbara Walters back in the 70s. And uh, Barbara Walters asked her, she's like, Dolly, do you, do you think of yourself as a joke because of the way you've chosen to look? <laughs> and uh, Dolly said, no, I get the attention of the public through the way that I look to show them something real, to show them something on the inside. And so the joke's on them. I know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> There's only one who knows the accuracy of our motivations and the reason why people do what they do. And clearly, uh, you know, even when our motivations are actually good and full of integrity, like in the case of Abim Abimelech, it's, it's a gift, it's a grace, it's from God. And so as you think about your own lives, you know, especially if you're on the cusp of making a big decision, like let's say you want to choose a job or maybe cho choose to leave a job or you're, you're thinking about marrying somebody or breaking up with somebody, the way that human history works in God's plan is that God's plan interacts in and through human decisions and if you're on the cusp of a big decision like that, you're probably not going to get a voice from heaven telling you what to do. And what God wants you to do is to look at your reality, see it for what it is, and, and wisely make a choice knowing that he's with you. And that's how God's plan, that's how God's will gets manifested in the world. Like one of my buddies used to say, he's like, you know when I knew that... I was going to marry my wife. And uh, he said, when, when I was at the altar, and I said, I do. <laughs> That's when it was clear. 
God calls you to act in the circumstances that he's placed you in with all of your mixture of motivations and trust that he's present with you. Now, think about this story. This is in the midst of a beauty contest for King Xerxes, and the author introduces another important person in the story, Mordecai, in verses 5, we'll do 5 through 7. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel. Susa was one of the capital cities of Persia at the time. The citadel was like the main section, the Acropolis of the city, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. That's important for later on in this story, which we'll get to in the coming weeks. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadessa, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now, I want to focus on just the first few words of verse 5. It says that Mordecai was a Jew in Susa. And I want to talk about how do we understand exile within God's plan. And I think this speaks to the heart of what most of us feel right now in this room. How do we live in a place where we don't belong? How do we navigate our own loneliness? How do we move through the world when we feel completely disintegrated from the place or the people around us? What do we do when we constantly feel not home? Any minority culture within a dominant culture has to ask these questions. Um, Stephen Yun, uh, one of the actors in The Walking Dead, he talks about what it's like growing up as a Korean American with Korean immigrant parents. And he said, you know, I never felt at home in America, but the one place I did feel at home was in the Korean church growing up. And so he said, whenever there was a hard uh, acting scene that I had to gear myself up for, he's like, I would turn on Korean praise music to kind of like make me feel grounded. And he would listen to this other song called Home because he never felt rooted or grounded enough to face the reality of his life. That's what immigrants have to do. That's what people that feel homeless have to do. And Mordecai, it's clear, verse 5, that he was not at home. That's the author's point. He's in exile. The root word for exile is used four times in verse 6 in your passage. And in verse 7, it's even worse for Esther because she doesn't have parents. And all she has is this older cousin who sort of functioned like a, an uncle slash father. And the, the great thing about exile is that if you go ahead and accept the reality that this has been the way of human beings since the Garden of Eden, one of the things it teaches you is resilience in the face of that feeling that you're never at home. That things are never quite right. And the moment you think you've arrived at a place that feels stable, you guys know this. The moment, you know, like if you raise children, it's like the good, the good things last like two weeks and then they change, right? And then you kind of like get used to them at a certain age and then all of a sudden like, you know, Violet will be 10, like my daughter today. And you're like, what in the world just happened? 
And you guys that are just like, you know, seeing your children off to college for the first time, you're like, oh my gosh, death is near, right? You know, um, things are constantly evolving. And, and one of the questions I have for guys, like, why does it happen, have, have to happen so fast, you know? But you guys, this is the point of this, the Scriptures revealing to you when you are known by God in the midst of a broken world, this is how things feel. Exile. Everything's transient. And things aren't as they should be. And the sooner you come to grips with that, the better. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this in Life Together. He said, every one of us has an idea of what a Christian community should be like. An illusion is what he calls it. And he says, the sooner you let that die, your expectations of it die and accept the reality of what's right in front of you, the better. So just like the Jews in the Old Testament, Christians have for centuries thought of themselves as exiles, and the point of an exile is to quietly believe that God is at work everywhere. Now there are two great temptations when you don't believe that when you're in exile. The first is to be obsessed with, with what the world can offer, which is what happened in Persia, obsessed with physicality. Or the other pitfall is to disengage completely and say, this is hopeless, this is so whacked out that I'm not even going to play. I'm not going to be a part. And what Esther and Mordecai are teaching us is how to live in a culture when you feel displaced, when you feel disintegrated, when you feel lonely. We are to move into the world knowing that God is faithfully present everywhere and to use wisdom to navigate life in our present circumstances. So, ground level on the story, verse 7, Esther was beautiful. And she was taken by the king's unit, Haggai, and given cosmetic treatments, verse 10. She had not made known her ethnicity to anyone by the counsel of Mordecai, and Mordecai kept an eye on how things were going, which meant that he had some sort of standing in the Persian court that allowed him to have access to the political powers of the day. And part of what I think this teaches us, you guys, is that within a pagan culture, how you live in it can differ dramatically based upon your own background and based upon your own approach. And we need to have space for each other and how we navigate that. So, for instance, these are Jews that, for whatever reason that we're not given in the text, they didn't go back to Jerusalem and help rebuild the temple like in Ezra and Nehemiah. They stayed away from God's presence with all the pagans. And it was a culture that was overly sexualized and obsessed with appearances and power. But you guys, this is where the gospel can go. It goes into highly backward societies and God's kingdom can get planted and activated and actually flourish in a setting like this. So this really, um, this really struck me when I was in, in Greece in particular over the summer. There's this verse, you guys, in Romans 16.23. This is what... Paul says, he says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, 
and our brother Cordus greet you. Erastus was apparently really, really good with money and taxes. And this guy got converted. And he was a massive part of Paul's ministry. You can read about this in your Bible. Acts, Acts chapter 19 and 2 Timothy 4 verse 20. Erastus. His name literally means one who is worthy to have sex with. Now can you imagine... The Jewish brothers and sisters, you know, they're dispersed and they come back to these churches and you got Erastus as one of the leading members of the church at Corinth. His name is etched in stone to this day at the church in Corinth. Leading member of the church in Corinth. Can you imagine what these brothers and sisters are just like, what in the world are you doing? You're, you're so enmeshed within the world that there is no decipherable difference between you Christians and the pagan culture in which you live in. What are you doing? You're eating all these food sacrifices to Zeus like you are so secular. And the Gentile Christians are like, there is no Zeus. We can eat this meat because Zeus isn't even real. Like we don't have to do all this ceremonial stuff because we have Jesus. And what does Paul do in the midst? This is the main issue at the ground level in the New Testament. What does Paul do? He says, you better think of one another before you think about yourselves. You better put the other person first before you. You need to think of their interests, not your own. And so if you have tightly wound convictions of things that you think we must do, or if you want to flaunt your freedom, Paul says you must love. You must love the human, be- the human being and all their complexity, that human being that's right in front of you, no matter who they are or what they believe. Love them. Put them first. And that requires wisdom. And y'all, it's going, to take more, it's going to take more than courage to live out the Christian life. You, know, you may be like, I, I would die for my faith. Well, that, that's good. But can you love the person right in front of you that believes something totally different and lives out the Christian life in a totally different way than you would? One side says we've assimilated into secular culture and the other side says you're not loving anybody and I want you to look at Esther because the Christian church doesn't know what to do with somebody like Esther or Jesus for that matter. She's too immersed in the world for people who take their faith seriously or she's too accommodating to patriarchy, to, to modern sensibilities and this is why the scripture can critique any and every culture. And the scriptures neither condemn nor affirm her actions. It just simply describes what's happening. (laughs) Isn't that curious? Which means she's not a role model. Like, I don't want my daughter acting like Esther. You go please the pagan king. I don't want that. Nor, nor does Scripture say she's, she's totally in the wrong. She, she didn't have a choice. And some of us are like, well, yes, yeah, she did. She could have been like Joseph and Daniel who stood up in the midst of a pagan culture. But look at what Mordecai tells her. Mordecai literally says, don't tell them who you are, a Jew. And if we have ears to hear it, you guys, this is hard. This is really, really difficult. But he's saying, hide what you believe for now. 
There will be a time when you can say it, but now is not the time. Doesn't that seem false, disingenuous? I don't know, but what I do know is that Jesus doesn't give straight answers a lot of times too. He let the plan of God develop, and when it was time, he clarified just exactly who he was and what he came to do. And he said, I am the Messiah, and I did come to die and suffer and rise again. And what the night before the crucifixion, it's what theologians call Jesus' humiliation, where he's sweating drops of blood. What we are to see is that this is the only king in the world who can actually capture the human heart, not through physical appearance or power or ways that are comprehensible to our minds, but through his willingness to hide his beauty and to hide his power, to cover it up at the cross, to wear a crown of thorns. That's true royalty. You guys, everything about Jesus appeared wrong. The Messiah was ugly, according to Isaiah. And there are parts of your life where you look at it and you think, this is just wrong. It's wrong. It shouldn't be here. I want it to go away. I'm tired of this being here. And what Jesus is is doing in the midst of that, he said, I'm there. I am in that place. And I will show you that I am beautiful in the midst of the ugliest thing that you face. Look, after Esther completes all her beauty training, she goes into the king. And the repeated refrain about Esther throughout this chapter is that she wins favor in the eyes of all who see her. And it was no different than Xerxes. All she needed was one night. And so she had that night and it was enough. And it says that the king loved her more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in the sight more than all the virgins. And then this is the key verse. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And then he did something that everybody loves. He threw a party and gave tax breaks. And we're all like, man, that's all right. We can get on board with that. Um, you guys, this is how the gospel works on the human heart. It transforms how we interpret everything. So that if we are given beauty in this life, We neither obsess over it or dismiss it. But we use wisdom with what's been given to us for the benefit of the weak. Not for our own. Knowing that Jesus too wore a crown, and by his crown, we learn what eternal beauty looks like. And guys, when we're isolated and we're lonely and disintegrated in our communities, so sad that things won't ever feel right, when we're homesick, we hold on. Because we believe that there actually is a time coming for us where we enter heaven itself. And in that place, you guys, every human will be honored. Every man and woman will be equal. We will not objectify one another. There won't be strong or weak people. We will all be one in Christ. 
and then we will have rest because we are rooted in Jesus Christ. Like that tree in Psalm 1 that yields fruit in its season continually. And that's, what's we're, that's what we're heading towards. And if that's true, we can be attuned to the problems of this world without getting cynical. We can, we can engage without retreating. We can live in the world's all-pervasive empower. We can actually empire. We can actually pray for its flourishing. But we don't have to trust what it offers. We could focus on giving instead of consuming. And through the gospel, we can put beauty in its proper place, and we can face exile because of Jesus' kingdom. That's where we're headed, and that's where we belong, and that's where we will feel the most loved without any sin, without any dysfunction. So, let's pray, and uh, as we think about Esther today, um, as we think about our own appearances as we think about how lonely some of us feel, uh, Jesus wants you to take that deficiency and that lack and bring it to him here at this table, the true feast. So let's pray. Father, we ask that the gospel would be poured out into our hearts and that we would receive it with thanksgiving, just like we receive the waters of the grace of baptism, that we would receive your blood as the cleansing and beautifying thing, which, which we're longing for, Lord. We're always longing for it. And we look everywhere else besides you to get it. And here at this table, you bring us back. You bring us back to yourself. And so would you do that again here? In Christ's name, amen.